In our last lesson, Nathan introduced us to the city of Ephesus. It was a major city in the Roman Empire, uh, perhaps most famous for its temple of Artemis, or Diana. This temple was so large and impressive for its day, it was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. So worship of Artemis had a major influence uh, on the activities and economy of the city and its residents. And if you recall, Paul was blamed for a major riot in the city that was sparked uh, over the fact that the growing influence of the gospel uh, in the city was discrediting Artemis and hurting the livelihoods of everyone who had depended uh, on the worship of Artemis, especially the silversmiths uh, who made their living selling these silver shrines uh, to Artemis. But more than the worship of Artemis, Ephesus was known as a centre of magic, or what's known as mystery rites. <clears throat> when I say magic, of course, I don't mean what we think of today. Not performances of illusion or sleight of hand. We're not talking about David Copperfield. Uh, what we're talking about is what the Bible refers to as witchcraft or sorcery or divination. What's involved in this basically amounted to the manipulation of gods or spiritual forces uh, to bring about the will uh, of the magician or the practitioner. It wasn't about seeking the will uh, of gods or spirits or you know, doing the will of those gods or spirits. Uh, it was about manipulating those gods or spirits uh, to, to, to your will, uh, to do what you wanted them to do. So you can imagine anything from spells that would make people fall in love with you uh, to curses on your enemy that would bring them suffering or death uh, and everything in between. <clears throat> Archaeologists have found many uh, magic books um, uh, and, and spell and curse books uh, for in Ephesus uh, from the first century uh, with these types of spells or incantations written in them. <clears throat> They also would use physical objects, whether it's things like amulets or tokens, or there's parts of animals like the hair of a donkey or the organs of a bird, all of that sort of thing. And there's evidence of all of this type of thing uh, going on around Ephesus at the time. But let's not make the mistake of assuming this was all just harmless play that never really amounted to anything of consequences. These types of practices are consistently warned against uh, throughout the Old Testament. And I think that's the case for two reasons. Firstly, because this isn't of God. It's not God's doing. Um, it, and it's not causing people to draw to God. Um, it's, not, it's causing people to put their hope and trust in things other than God to whom it's rightfully due. But also I think it's because, or at least it can be, actually real. If you consider Pharaoh's magicians um, in Exodus who were able to turn, they were actually able to turn their staves into snakes, just like Aaron was. Or the medium of Endor uh, in 1 Samuel who successfully summoned the spirit of Samuel uh, to talk with King Saul. And that's not even to mention uh, modern day accounts that we might hear of the power of this type of activity. So if we dismiss it or flirt with it um, to our peril. And I don't think it would be hard to assume that this type of activity was familiar with most people in the Roman world. And especially those somewhere 
like Ephesus, where, as we've said, it was commonplace. So despite the fact that these practices were officially banned uh, in the Roman Empire, they were considered to be antisocial, um, it nevertheless flourished. And Ephesus, as we said, was known to be a hub of this type of activity. And then, as we noted last week, this was apparent in Paul's time spent in Ephesus that we saw in Acts chapter 19, where after a number of these sorcerers uh, repented of their witchcraft, um, they gathered all of their magical scrolls and spell books and burned them publicly. Um, and as it says there, the total value of those books burned was about a 50,000 days wages, um, which would probably be in the order of $10 million uh, in today's money. So that just shows you the prevalence of this magic and how much it was valued, how much they had invested uh, in this type of activity, in this type of uh, faith, if you will. So this is the world of Ephesus that Paul encountered as a missionary and which the church in Ephesus lived uh, and engaged with. And Paul himself actively engaged with it. As, as we saw also in Acts chapter 19, we saw Paul performing many uh, extraordinary miracles of his own in Ephesus. Even items of his clothing, or, or not even his clothing, that anything that he'd touched basically seemed capable of healing the sick, not to mention driving out demons. It all sounds very similar to the magic of the Ephesians. And this caught the attention of those magi- magic practitioners and other Jewish exorcists and the like, and all the residents of Ephesus. Their own magic, their own exorcisms just couldn't compete with what they witnessed through Paul or through the invocation of the name of Jesus. As we noted a moment ago, this prompted many of the magicians to give up their magic, um, destroying the libraries of books. And although we don't know how many, we might assume that many or all of them became members of the church in Ephesus as a result. And that's who Paul is now writing to. <clears throat> so think for a moment about the impact this would have had on these Ephesians. Think of the baggage they must have brought with them and had to shed as they became Christians. Imagine how this must have shattered and altered their world view. Imagine the temptation they must have faced, still surrounded by this culture of magic and idolatry. They lived in a world where this type of power was commonly seen, commonly used, commonly relied upon uh, by its practitioners. It was just part of the culture, part of the air that they breathed. And that brings us to consider the question of power. Ephesian magicians had a clear understanding of power and an experience of power that was available to them to achieve their ends. They were were at home in a world of spiritual beings who could be accessed and manipulated uh, according to their will. This world of power at their fingertips. But what's the Christian perspective? What does God have to say to people who would come out of this world? Whose power really is at play in the world? To what end or to whose end should this type of power be directed? How do we access power? How do we use it 
whom is to whom is power like this available? And who is subject to that power? We saw last time Paul describe in detail the blessings that we have in Christ. Adoption as sons, redemption, forgiveness, grace. Wonderful things. But are they real? How do we know that they're real? It sounds great, but you have to admit that on their own they're not really tangible promises. As Jesus himself admitted, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven uh, than to actually perform a miracle that people can see and, and can witness with their own eyes. Um, of course, Jesus did perform many miracles, as did the apostles and as did Paul, as we've already noted. Even such that it impressed these magic, magic, magical practitioners in Ephesus. But is this what Christians are promised? Is that what we're promised? That we too can perform miracles or magic spells that will impress the world uh, with the power that's at our command? Is this the kind of knowledge and understand that Paul's talking about? Where do we stand as Christians in a world that demands a sign? A world that a world that's used to seeing and expects to see power exercised in such powerful and obvious ways. In today's reading, Paul talks about power, power that we have in Christ, in a way that I think speaks directly to these questions and speaks directly to those in the church at Ephesus that faced these types of questions for themselves. So without further ado, let's read from the passage for this morning before we talk more about it. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul writes, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that's invoked not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So this section takes the form of a prayer uh, for the Ephesians uh, in response to, the, to their, as he says, faith and love. I think this is connected to the prior section that considers God's love and the fruit of faith in Jesus that we saw last time. Here Paul recognised that, that he recognised that faith and love made manifest in the Christians at Ephesus. And you can tell this has Paul excited. He can't stop giving thanks for them, and they're constantly 
uh, in, in his mind in, in his, in, and in his prayers. He'd spent a lot of time in Ephesus and it's clear that he has a great affection for them. But most of all, the news he hears from them is good. The fruit of their faith is apparent. But more than just thankfulness, Paul goes on to mention three things that he asks God for on their behalf. Wisdom, insight and knowledge. And these are obviously all connected to one another. His prayer is that they receive wisdom and insight to know God better. But this isn't a mystical or Gnostic kind of knowledge. It's not a mysterious secret that had until now been hidden from them. These were things that he had already been revealed and taught to them. They were the types of things that had been mentioned in the opening section of the letter that we saw last time. And as he says in verse 18, he wants them to know the hope to which God has called them, the riches of the glorious inheritance in them, God's holy people, and God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Surely this is nothing new to them. But I think it's Paul's desire that they come to fully embrace and fully embody this knowledge and this understanding. Not just in their heads, but in their lives. He goes on later in the letter to talk about how they can do this. How they can embody the truth of these glorious works of God. This is what it means to truly know these things. And this is Paul's desire for them. Just as an aside, I think it's interesting to consider Jesus' message to the Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, where they're accused of losing their first love, as it puts it. Of course, there's a lot of speculation of what exactly uh, they might, might be referred to here, but I wonder if it has anything to do with what Paul is praying for here. Had they embraced this insight and understanding and knowledge of God, fully embodying it in their lives, just as Paul had prayed, and yet over the time they began to take things for granted. Perhaps a generation had rolled over and they lost that spark. They lost that spirit that Paul had prayed for and that they had embodied. Anyway, I hope you understand that what I'm trying to say is that Paul's hope and prayer involves them fully knowing and fully living out the truth of the gospel in their lives, the truth of these many blessings in Christ, and fully living that out in their lives. To somehow bring these concepts that are possibly abstract, uh, these concepts of blessing and adoption and glory and grace, and making them real somehow, making them tangible in their lives, making them concrete, making a manifestation of these spiritual truths in physical lives that can be seen and witnessed and testified of. I think this is especially apparent as he begins to consider in greater detail this power that he's mentioned in verse 19. He prays that they may know God's incomparably great power for us who believe, which on its own sounds great, but it isn't very specific. What is this power that he's talking about? 
But he goes on to establish this power firmly in history, firmly in the real world. As he writes, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So I'm not saying that this power is from the world, but this power was exercised in the world. It was a power you could see and its effects were seen and felt in the real world. The power was made manifest in the world in a very specific moment in history. This turns this power that he's speaking of from something that's just abstract into something very tangible, very real. Do you want to see evidence of this power, he says? Look to Jesus' resurrection. That's where we can see this power on full display. This, of course, highlights the centrality of Jesus' resurrection for our faith. As Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. All the blessings that we have in Christ, all those things that we spoke about last time, they're all rooted in Christ's resurrection. And the power of the resurrection, the defeat over death, shows the true power of God at work in the world. That's still at work in the world. And at work, Paul says, in us. Notice what he says about this power. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. But not just that. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in the present age, but also the age to come. This is such absolute language. The power is absolutely supreme. Jesus' position is absolutely supreme. Above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name you can think of, in this age and the next, this is the measure of that power that Paul is talking about. And that power continues to be at work in us, made manifest in us, as he goes on to say. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I'll speak more on that in a moment, but I want us to reflect for a moment on the nature of the power that we're talking about. As I said earlier, the Ephesians lived in a world full of manifestations of power. Political power, military power, even magical and spiritual power. Power used for selfish ends, for selfish glory, for trivial, short-lived projects. Power that doesn't really last. But the power and strength in Jesus' resurrection isn't like that. This isn't power for our own ends. Paul isn't saying to the Ephesians, 
Look what you could do if you only embraced it and believed. Look at all this pa- Look how powerful you can be. <laughs> no, it's power that's worked for us and through us, the church, but not for our own selfish, short-sighted plans. It's according to God's will and plan, a power that serves and blesses others, not ourselves. It's not about our manipulating powerful spirits for our own worldly ends. It's our working in the world to defeat those spirits and powers for God's purposes. It's not the power of arbitrary or capricious or spirits that can be easily manipulated. It's the power of a loving, sovereign God whose intention is to bless us, not harm us. You don't have to worry that someone will manipulate God to use that power against your interests. The ends of God's power are already determined and revealed. And it's all good news in Christ. You see, this isn't an aimless or arbitrary power that we can turn on and off like a tap when it's convenient for us. It's planned and directed and purposeful power that we participate in. It's a power that's been working throughout history and through its work in Jesus' resurrection and joining to it in the church, we join in this great story of history. Not myth, but history. We participate in God's story of his purposes achieved through his great power. That's Paul's prayer, that the Ephesians will perceive and to know and experience this reality, to realise that as the church they participate as Jesus' body in this story. Listen to how, how Eugene Peterson phrases this passage in the message. He writes, All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule, and not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the centre of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Do you get that sense of us as the church being called up into a great story of God's plan in Christ? Participating in that story? Central to that story? Do you see why Paul is excited about this and prays for the Ephesians to know and understand this? I think it's something really worth impressing on our minds. So much of not just the Gospels, but the entire New Testament, not to mention the Old Testament, is all about telling us this story. And most importantly, convincing us that it's true, not myth, not philosophy, not parables, but truth, history, 
fact. And not just of the past, but the present and the future. Listen to how much John makes of this in the opening of the first uh, of first John. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This sounds a lot like Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, doesn't it? He says, these things are true. They happened. They're history. This is our testimony. We witnessed these things. And we want you to know these things. And we want you to join in and participate in these things together with us in Christ, in the church. Paul puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, describing the whole story of God's plan in Christ through all time. He writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything we might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all this fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. What a story. What a privilege and a blessing it is to be invited to take part in this story. It's a story that began before time, before anything was even created. A story worked out through God's power according to his plan. A plan to reconcile all things to himself through Christ, who was above all things. 
It's a story that demonstrates God's love, but it's also a story that demonstrates God's power. Power seen most vividly in his raising Jesus from the dead. In doing so, he began the process through which he would ultimately defeat all his enemies, all the enemies of his people, and restore to his people, restore his people as their rightful place as stewards of his creation. So in embracing this story, in embodying this story, we make a statement against all of those powers and authorities that Jesus is indeed supreme. This is the truth. This is reality. We don't need magic. We don't need spells or potions. We don't need seances with the dead. We don't need armies or kings. We only need Christ. Christ crucified, raised and ascended and now over all things at the right hand of God. That's good news indeed.